You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, this is John Spiris Avent, and I am co-hosting today with Elliot Goldberg. Hey, my friend Elliot. Hi, John. Nice to be here with you. Oh, it is so good to be with you. So first of all, you, you're also a rabbi, and how are you doing your Jewish stuff these days? I'm doing it very well, thank you very much. I'm working currently as a consultant and a coach. I do some writing for my Jewish learning, particularly about Tafiomi, daily study of Talmud, one page a day for seven and a half years. If you don't want to jump into the whole project, you can get a, a daily email from my Jewish learning, and you'll see me there about once a week. So you've committed, I, I, I see your Dafyomi things, uh, you've committed for now for what, the next five years to write these yeah. things? Yes, I am. That's, a, that's a, a leap to faith, as we might say in the language of <laughs> It is a leap to faith, and it's a commitment. So mostly we don't talk about our life resumes here, but I, I just can't resist to say that Elliot's one of my old friends from early in rabbinical school and someone I've laughed a lot with. I'm looking forward to laughing here today. It's my my first podcast. so Of any sort? I'm a podcast. Well, I've listened to them, <laughs> but it's my first time participating. So uh, you'll tell me how I do if I pull it off. Then, well, you know. So far, you know, the main skill involves, you know, talking to another person and you seem to have that down. Oh, thank uh, you. So thank far. You. Yeah. <laughs> So, so for your true soul introduction, who is the character on The Good Place you, you know, today most identify with? Ah, well, as I, I've been thinking about these questions and discussing them with my family. That's, that's and, way too much preparation. I know. Well, some of that is because this is where I landed in, I, I think I am most like Chidi and partly because it's hard for me to decide which character I'm the most like. <laughs> I deliberate back and forth about, you know, who I'm most like. It was easier for me to answer the question, which character do I like the most than which one I'm the most like? But uh, I think there's some cheaty in me. And especially given our episode today where it, it, as he stood before the two hats, we haven't done the summer yet, I know. So it's a spoiler for this podcast. <laughs> he stood before the two hats. I imagine myself like shopping for hiking boots. You know, at EMS or REI saying, do I buy these or to buy those? And I could stand there for 80 minutes before I pick the hiking boots I'm going to invest in. So I think that makes me a cheaty in and, many and, ways. And are you more of an almond milk or a soy milk person? I'm a milk person. <laughs> That said decisively, yeah. I yes. should have. What I should have done is, you know, when I had my daughter on the podcast, I actually put in an envelope my prediction since I knew her, have known oh. her for, for a while, and I should have done this for you too. But anyway, so uh, moving on, which character, you know, do you wish you were more like? Do I wish I was more like? I would. Well, <laughs> there's a piece of me that really wants to be Jason. Because there's a way in which he's carefree. There's some downsides to that choice. Sometimes he, I, I would love to be only aware of 20% of what's going on <laughs> at any one time. I think there's there's bliss in that. And uh, there's a piece of that that I would like. Although I like the 80% too. So that's hard to do. I'm really drawn to Michael though, in so many ways. Both I, I love Michael's love of the small things. Mm. From suspenders to, you know, movie movie club cards or all those little <laughs> things that entertain him about the world, I like to be entertained about. And there's a magic to that. 
Actually, I'm going to give Michael a, another look before I answer this question for myself in season three, because I might have thought that your Michaelness, again, knowing you for a while, is uh, you, you have been the designer of places and experiences in, in camps and schools, and, uh, oh, yeah. and, and yet the delights of... I've seen you with the delights of the day-to-day in those environments, too. That's cool. There is that. One of my kids said, Dad, you like to be in charge. So that's Michael. He's in charge. You... <laughs> I hope she meant that in a good way, but we'll see. Now that I added her on the podcast, we'll see. You know, That's double <laughs> criticism from teenagers, maybe. You weren't supposed to say that on the <laughs> So do you have a story of how you first got into The Good Place? I'm not, I mean, I'm assuming you will get in, get into The Good Place, but I mean, got into the, watch, watching the show, The Good Place. Yeah. Well, I first heard about it just as, you know, the show was being advertised and I dabbled in a couple episodes. My first time watching, I made it a couple episodes through and then life got busy or I didn't take to it and nothing objectionable, but it didn't sink in. And then partly the pandemic and you know, my friendship with streaming <laughs> that emerged led me to say, oh, what should I watch next? And I said, all right, let's try the let's try the good place. And actually, we've had some fits and starts in the household of different family members watching the good place at different times. And we're getting to the place where almost all of us have finished almost all the episodes. So we can now talk about it a little more publicly because I know <laughs> we have the spoiler rule in our house. So, And my latest rewatch was inspired by this podcast because I was really intrigued with taking the sitcom and making it a, a higher order exercise, which I think you've done wonderfully here. And it made me think, oh, let me watch and see what comes out of this in terms of you know d- deeper truths along with the entertainment of the show and how do we connect that to, to Judaism. And I think your contribution to my love of The Good Place has been significant. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, there's so many co-hosts here who have uh, been feeding that off each other. It's it's cool. You said you started and you stopped, you know, initially. Was there something that kind of hooked you back, you know, for the long haul? I think it was the end of season one. I thought, okay, this is cute for season one, but the big twist at the end of season one said, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. And then I really think the way in which the characters explored the bigger questions and the show explored the bigger questions, grabbed me more. You know, I like the humor. I find myself chuckling. There are some lots of moments I think, oh, that's funny. But in terms of like, how is this show making me think about bigger questions? You know, I had to get through season one and that hooked me for the longer run. And I had moments where I stopped and said, all right, that's enough. And then I went back, you know, from time to I went back and eventually finished. So so there are a lot of stories of people talking about their kids getting into it, either, you know, just independently and it becoming a conversation thing. You have kids at home who are watching and talking about it or just kind of enjoying it. Yeah, well, I have twins who are seniors and an eighth grader. And based on their peer groups, well, especially the older ones, there was a time where their friends were discovering the show, they started to watch it some and then petered out. They have recently re-engaged. My eighth grader, who is fun to watch with, I think before we started, you shared this too, you know, about one of your kids, that she loves the humor in it and she laughs along and it's fun to watch the show with her because it's fun to watch her laughing at the jokes that she really likes. And I like watching her get a kick out of it. So that was fun. I think she was a leader in her peer group to say, hey, check out this show that I discovered. We'll yeah. see if her friends stick with it. But, you know, it's in the culture. So everyone's looking for what to watch next. And, you know, my kids dabbled with it when their their friends did. And I know for the older ones, like Grey's Anatomy, 
intruded and that's a lot of seasons so it took them a long time <laughs> to watch all of Grey's Anatomy before they had to say what am I going to do next but I think they might finish this time so we'll so we're going to talk about chapter 25 the burrito Elliot why don't you give us a summary sure the burrito uh, without Michael and Janet the humans go through the portal to the chambers of the judge who refuses to hear their case Tahani pleads that they have come a long way and the judge relents because of Tahani's accent each of the four is given a separate test, and the only way that they will go to the good place is if every one of them passes. Jason must play Madden football, but against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Chidi has to choose between two hats. Tahani is sent through a hallway where behind every door is someone talking about her, including her parents. Eleanor is given the opportunity to go to the good place, but only with Chidi. Meanwhile, Michael explains the human's improvement to Sean, who is preparing Michael's eternal punishment. But he is saved at the last minute by Janet, who has been pretending to be bad Janet. The judge announces her verdict, but before the humans can be sent off, Michael and Janet arrive. Very nice. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so any first of all, just any fun stuff that you loved in the episode? I, I loved the first moment where they walk in and there's just the burrito on the table and inside I was hoping for that the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy moment where the burrito would be the judge <laughs> you know that that suggestion was you know it was the nice joke for me I got a good chuckle out of it and uh, about the entrance of the judge and the, <laughs> and our discovery of who's going to play the judge and all that stuff but I really wanted the burrito to be the judge <laughs> You know, just by coincidence, we're making our, our dinner menu for the week. We had burritos last night. Oh, very yeah. nice. I wasn't even thinking about it. Oh, Here careful. It Don't eat it. It might really be the judge. <laughs> <It's> too... <laughs> that was one of my, I said before, like, you know, there's the Jason moments that I wish I could be like him. He was so proud of his insight. You know, he was so ready to just eat the burrito carefree until he said, what if it is the judge? Yes. That's <laughs> that the thing about Jason. You just never, sometimes he's the one who has the, yeah. <laughs> is clued Well, and then they really all believe on. him. No yeah. one says, sometimes they know to dismiss him, but it, it was enough to give them all pause. And then it gave me hope because, right? Because in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the burrito would be the judge and it would <laughs> go off on all different routes. Like, Ooh, maybe this will happen. But no. It's not clear that that Jen and, and my daughter love this thing that Jen is short for hydrogen. That the only, <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not clear that Judge Jen is that much of an improvement on a burrito. <laughs> as a, <laughs> it is true. Although I'm intrigued by, it's not just her. I know it's part of the shtick of the show, but why do all these immortal, divine, all-powerful, all-knowing beings need to watch television <laughs> I mean, like right like or like you know michael said in another episode like i can read all of the universe's literature in like an hour and she your thesis took me two weeks <laughs> i i get the joke of that but no it shouldn't take him two weeks he just knows it or right the the judge should just know all the seasons of survivor and not have to watch <laughs> them or the bachelor or whatever she watches like why I have I have like qu philosophical questions about like these you know eternal beings, and some of what seems to be the limits in their all powerfulness that isn't in line with the, <laughs> the theological and philosophical structures of the show. <laughs> Maybe see there's the cheating in me. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I definitely love, I, I'm a huge fan of Sean, mostly because I love his voice. And um, yes. I think uh, when he's expressing his disappointment to Michael about, I think he's like, you know, didn't I, didn't I teach you to grab humans' butts from the inside or something, <laughs> pull them out? <laughs> yeah. It's a powerful moment. For, you know, I was thinking about this episode I just recently watched like a whole bunch of times to get ready for today. And it made me think about the themes of your first episodes when you started the podcast, like about repentance and chuva. And it hit me that the character who is the most repentant is Michael. Oh, And we see the first hints of that in this ep, right? He, he's broken. He's on the run a little bit. Like circumstances had led him to start moving on this path. But he's in the room with his peers and he says, no, we're going the wrong way. And I, he's making these new commitments. And I want, you know, it's, it's a theme the show hasn't directly visited, but Michael's in the process of his own re-envisioning himself based on his own moral awakening. And uh, I love that moment. And then, you know, the next couple seasons of it, watching that transpire. Well, you're right. It is it is a moment, and I'm thinking about this teaching of of Rambam of Maimonides that was way back. We started with and have touched in on periodically in the podcast that the real test of teshuvah of have you really accomplished this change is if it's not under duress or just because you don't have the opportunity to fall into the same trap again. And if anything, in in uh, Sean's office, Michael doesn't have his support system. Yeah, uh, he doesn't even have Janet, although it turns out he does. And <laughs> but uh, he but he thinks he's all alone, and he's still willing to go toe to toe with Sean. And that is a very uh, powerful thing. And it kind of picks up, I think, on the end of the last episode where he had this moment of where he said he resolved the trolley problem by <laughs> the one option, which wasn't there, which is to sacrifice yourself, which is what he's. He's oh, yeah. done. Now I have problems, in a way, problems from a Jewish point of view. I, I don't think that the, the only way out of this dilemma of knowing your pure modifications is to sacrifice yourself. But it definitely in this situation is, is a good demonstration of that. Yeah. Well, self-sacrifice, while not a, in, in the ultimate way, isn't a daily value. But there are situations when pushed to it where that's the Jewish choice, right? There are things you can't do. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, that Judaism draws some lines. There are cardinal sins that you have to sacrifice, or I know in the content in Jewish history, like there's the you know the, the soldier sacrifice, right? Sacrificing one life to save many. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just Jewish history, right? That's in you know that's the, the soldier's piece of that. So I don't. Know, I wonder. Yeah, and what's nice about this is that I, I think Michael has maybe thought that he's been playing for time for the humans in that sense, but it's not it's not like a great hand. He doesn't he doesn't really know that he's going to save them anyway, even with this act of self sacrifice. And- Although what's tricky about Michael is he's good at playing a role. Many times, like he reveals later that oh, I only did that to get everyone to move the pieces around the board in different ways. So sometimes he's authentic, but sometimes he's playing a role because. He thinks he's predicting how everyone's going to react. Yeah. Um, this one sounds pretty good, though, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think he's authentic here. But sometimes with Michael, like two episodes later, you know, Eleanor figures out, wait, you just did that two episodes ago so that I would do this. And it's yeah. happening. 
So the as he's going into the cell, I just have to say, as the child of an internist, the thing about the endless stack of New Yorker magazines, <laughs> totally. We, I mean, it's not so much that we did constantly. We had them. They came to the house. They came to my father's waiting room. And as I'm thinking about it, like it's not at all clear to me why the New Yorker is what you would read in a waiting room. Unless it was in the years when when you, when you would assume that your wait would be so long, you'd have time to read a whole article. In the oh, newspaper. yeah. But, uh, <laughs> right. People's Magazine is better because the articles are short. And right. if the doctor's behind an hour or two, you need the New Yorker. <laughs> Although I was surprised that he didn't rejoice in that in one of his, you know, well, if I have to spend eternity in this room, I've always wanted to read all of the New Yorker slowly <laughs> like humans do. Like, yeah. <laughs> That could have been the best thing for him, like suspenders. <laughs> well, it actually, it's a big contrast to your thing about how the eternal beings seem to be so into, you know, binge-watching streaming <laughs> television, and The New Yorker is about as opposite to that as you could get. Right. Yes. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I had another personal connection to the to the judge's end of the... <laughs> The video that she made. Oh yeah, um, with the and the it happens that the this this is said with love. The the wind beneath my wings. We sat down with the musician who is going to organize the the klezmer music and and band at our wedding and did not have a repertoire of popular songs. And we had a couple songs that that we thought. And he said, well, kind of the only he didn't even know the name of this song. He says, I just I have this one. You're my hero, and <laughs> and I do that. And and my wife Lori was like, yeah, no. Yeah, that's not our song, and and nothing against you know the great Bette Midler, but <laughs> but it was. But that turned out to be our first dance, and that's oh. the moment when we watch our wedding video where we cringe a little. It's like, yeah, right. that's, the, that's the only moment we. <laughs> well, I know it's not our, our our Jewish topic for the day, but uh, the the video or picture montage, you know, the, there's the like we we had a pandemic bat mitzvah in our house. Things went differently, and and we. We did not fulfill, you know, the Jewish religious obligation to show a montage <laughs> at the at our daughter's bat mitzvah as we celebrated. And it seems that we we pulled it off without criticism. But you know, <laughs> it's almost like you know entered into the Jewish legal you know literature of like what what do you have to do at your bar bat mitzvah? Well, you know, you have an aliyah, you read the haftorah, and you know. Sometime later, you show a montage. <laughs> and this, so this I like montage. that they adopted that practice. It shows it's in the broader culture. And I love that this was like bad iPhone photo montage with you know distor- oh, yeah. distorted faces and bad lighting and you know like your like your no offense to third graders but like your third grader put it together. Right, and- right there again, the all-knowing judge can't take a good photo. <laughs> Or her, you know, her PR staff can't pull it together right. That's another, there's a cheating moment with that too, right? Where he's like watching and he's like, I can't believe I had, don't have a stomachache. Oh, no, there it goes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's consistent. Uh, I needed to pause it all. The Tahani, the doors she passed and all the nice little the little jokes written on them. Prince Harry, Prince William, Prince. I loved how when she, after the verdict was decreed, she asked if she could, now that she learned it, she failed, if she'd just go, please go back and chat with Winston Churchill and Freddie Mercury. (laughs) (laughs) That's a place, like the moments like that with Tahani, when we watch with the family, it's always interesting. Like one of my daughters paused there and I forget what episode we were watching after Tahani made some reference to pop figures. And she was like, 
do you know what that's a reference to? <laughs> and just like some of her references are things like we have to pause and ask the kids. And yeah. now that there's something that they ask us and like so far, mostly we're okay. But every once in a while we need the cultural translator, but it's a multi-generational references and, you know, Tahani's worldly experience. She knows old celebrities and young celebrities. <laughs> I like that. She did not uh, play, make her move of, you know, I'd like to speak to your manager. She realized she's, She's gotten to the top manager. There's no more managers to uh, go yes. to. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yes, although she still failed. Like, she's a, she's still closest to square one. Hmm. I feel like her growth is yet to come. I thought her conversation with the parents was actually one of the lovelier moments of this. Because, I, you know, every the tests were all pretty stereotypical playing on the same thing that we've yeah. been hearing about about the you know jason's impulse control and you know self-centeredness and you know she did not scream at her parents i actually thought i thought she did that yeah. well and i was a little let down when she turned out to fail or yeah. to be considered to well, fail i was hoping even mid-sentence when she started by saying the whole point of this exercise is that everyone's supposed to be talking about me I wanted her to finish by saying, but the point is, it's not what other people are saying about me. It's what I say about myself. And instead, she went back to the sister motif. Yeah. And to me, that was like, really? You're still there? Yeah. Like, you've been dead for how many cycles of this afterlife? <laughs> and your parents are now in the afterlife. And I know that was the bane of your existence. But what have you been doing for all this time that like she still went back to the beginning? And, uh, you know, it, it, Jason struggles with like beating the Jacksonville Jaguars. Okay. Because I feel like he's stuck in his own limitations that it's harder for him to rise out of, but I wanted Tahani to like do even better. You know, she'll get there. Tahani fans hold out hope. She'll get there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but um, not yet from, from my perspective. So Elliot, you want to take us into something you brought to the episode? This text came to mind as um, I was thinking about this episode, right? Because the frame of the episode is you go before the judge in the afterlife and you have a test that's going to measure if you, right, you lived a worthy life or if you're going to merit going to the good place, right? In the framework of the show. And there's a, a text that uh, from the Talmud that I came to know just from the Talmud itself and from uh, two of my colleagues and teachers, uh, Rabbi Gordon Bernat Kunin and uh, Bruce Powell, both who I worked with a long time ago in uh, Milken Community High School in Los Angeles. And it's actually the Talmud's version of the burrito episode. Yeah. <laughs> There's not a lot of slapstick, but uh, text says uh, Rava, one of the Talmudic rabbis, tells us that uh, when a person is brought to judgment, they're going to be asked six questions. And the, what's implicit in this text is, these are the six questions you need to have a good answer to at the end of your life to merit whatever the reward is. And, you know, you, you, you may be surprised, John, but maybe not to find out that playing against your favorite football team and Madden football is not <laughs> one of the Talmud <laughs> images. But, so I'll give you all six questions and then you'll tell me what you think. Okay. All right. So the first is, were you faithful in business? Faithful implying like faithful to your business partners. Were you ethical in business? Maybe. Uh, number two, did you designate times for studying Torah? Meaning was studying Torah a fixed part of your life? Number three, did you build a family? The text is a little, that's a more modern translation, right? The text focused on, right, having your own children, but I updated it, to say, right? There are many ways we would, in our day, think about building a family to fulfill that. And the next is, did you hope for 
salvation, did you look out into the future and think that the world could be a better place and, you know, transformation would come? Number five, did you contemplate philosophical truths? Did you think about a chokhmah, says the text, the text, wisdom? Did you think about deeper things and big questions? And the last is, could you di- differentiate between one thing and another? As what the text says, I, as an educator, I think about that is, did you develop critical thinking skills? Could you look at two different things and, and discern the real difference between them? And well, I love all these questions and the way in which they're rooted in what Judaism is about. In the age that we're in, I don't know if it's impolite to talk about politics. On the oh, go for it. In the age in which we're in, I think this question about can we differentiate one thing for another and can we use critical thinking to expose biases? To me, that's you know, uh, really compelling of these six questions. Mm. Anyways, that's the six of these questions. The Talmud, of course, is silent about what your answer is supposed to be, but it does direct you. And uh, the motivation... I thought the answer answer was supposed to be be yes. (laughs) Oh, yes, sorry. (laughs) Oh, yes, correct. (laughs) Correct. Uh, Thank you, my chavruta, my study partner. The way in which the questions are framed, the answer is supposed to be yes. What the content that makes up the yes is, isn't isn't enumerated. The answers are supposed to be yes, if you want to go to the Talmudic vision of the good place. Uh, But... Beyond the yes, you know, you can study the Talmud and other thinkers about what that might be. But this particular teaching doesn't detail that, but it does give you a flavor of it. And different from the good place where you don't know until it's over what the yardstick upon which your life is going to be measured is. This text, I think why Robin wants to teach it to us is that once we learn it, he wants these things to be guideposts for us, you know, and say, do I want to get into the good place? Well, I'm going to start from the day I learned this text, working on these six things. And if I do that, when I sit before the judge and eat my burrito, I want to be able to say yes. And now I have to build a life that will let me say yes. Wow. So thank you. It's If you are not uh, listening to this while driving in a car, you might possibly want to open the show notes and look at the text while we talk about it, because that's a lot of pieces to keep in mind. But if you're driving... <laughs> Right, just, do it later. Just do it later. <laughs> Although if you're I, driving and you're Eleanor, this might be the perfect time to look, and then you'll be hit by a truck. <laughs> or bump into I know, somewhere. somehow in the show they can pull that off. I can't believe, you know, that wasn't a real suggestion. It felt like <laughs> good place appropriate. But I, even as I said, I was like, no, that's not only if it's on TV. Maybe if it's on the podcast. <laughs> just in terms of podcast, uh, good podcast behavior while driving, I have several times... Uh, while listening to podcasts, had to pull over my car either to laugh hysterically or to process uh, like brilliant insight. I heard uh. that both of those things. So please do that. Budget time in your drive for the many times in this podcast <laughs> uh, episode. All right, <laughs> I see that my over. my text has so grabbed you. We're now giving podcast <laughs> driving tips. <laughs> I have to say, I've heard this text and looked at it, but I, I love the way you translated it, Elliot, and and hope you'll kind of walk us through a piece of it again. My first question, of course, is, do you have to get all six right? Uh, uh, t- I mean, I don't know what's a good, you know, five out of six is less than 90%. Uh, the, coach me says, right? yeah. the coach in me says, well, what do you think, John? Do you have to get them all right? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Well, I also see I'm going to I would because I'm cheaty. I'm I'm going to this question of like you said, it's not that you're going to be asked the question and have to give an answer. 
and it's your life is going to be the answer, obviously, to the question. And what was different in this setup, and I, and actually, I, it took me a while to catch on to this. Like, wait a minute, she doesn't she have enough data to assess them? Why is she giving them yet another test about things that they already have kind of a record on? Yeah. Well, if the new place that the good place has gotten to is that these these four humans are given the opportunity to grow. It's not about the past. It's about where they are in the last day. I think on the show there, what they've done in the past doesn't matter. It's have they gotten to a point where they've learned all their lessons? Here's the one final test. It's interesting that the judge picks Eleanor to say that you've passed. I mean, first she tells her, which turns out to be a test that you're you're in, like you don't have to do anything. And then she sets up Eleanor in two ways. The first is with the fake cheaty who gives her a rationale for abandoning everybody else. And so Eleanor, the first test you said was about... Are you fa- were you faithful in business? Faithful you were ethical business. in your interactions. You know. And you also were saying, like, did you stand by your partner? Is that one of the, like, were you faithful to the people you were engaged Yeah, that you were in, engaged in trade with. I mean, it might, I, I think that the tax literally means about when you engaged in transactions with others. Were you upfront about what you were buying and selling? But it might be, in Eleanor's case, like, when it was your turn to be the designated driver, did you take it or did you swallow all the pieces of paper so that no one would know? (laughs) You know, there's that. But it it could just be in any interactions. Were you faithful? Were you trustworthy? Did you put yourself forward in the way that's ethical when you interacted with others? Because I think it's the main thing, and correct me if I remember this wrong, having less than 15 hours ago watched this episode again, but (laughs) when they talk about, is it Eleanor who agreed or who suggested that they have to pass, even if they can't take the test together, they have to pass, they have to go together as a group? I don't remember who says that. All right, we'll have to to go back. Check that. We'll pull over the car and we'll check that on our Netflix. And then, but but one- She's the one who locks them into, I feel like she's the one who says, yes. Let all or nothing. We're yeah. a union. So I not, don't remember who says it first. All right, good. So not only does Eleanor keep faith when she's presented with the opportunity to get a, a pass without them, but this went really quickly, like when she's the only one who passed the test. And when the judge comes to tell them all what they did wrong, Eleanor doesn't let her tell. Eleanor cuts off and says that she, what is it? She's a shrimp fiend. She, yeah. Uh, Lied. She lied to Chidi about, you know, taking all the, she pushed someone over or something at the raw bar. <laughs> she lies to him about, she doesn't want him to think that she's the only one who, Yeah. Uh, not only that she passed, but also that she's the only one, that she, she doesn't want to make out her own faithfulness to the group. She doesn't want to call attention to that. She wants right. to do it, but she doesn't want to get credit in a way for doing it, which is pretty right. cool. Well, she's really good at the situational ethics, I think. Like, Eleanor well, she's learning the grand ethical principles. She's good at saying this dilemma in this context at this moment, better to lie than for us all to go to the bad place and have all my friends think that somehow they dragged me down. To free them of the burden of that she has to go to because of the pact they made, she's willing to lie and that's the right choice for her. And, and it's defensible, but not in the world of Kant says lying is always wrong no matter what, which you know, sometimes yeah. is 
the, at the principal on the show. And I guess I like that they did it subtly. I think what I liked is that we're, we're you know, moral educators by some background, you and I, when it comes to, to kids and teenagers. And we can look at the importance of the group as the group helps you learn. Eleanor has long since understood that her own growth is because of the group. Yeah. The group is helping her. But now she feels a solidarity with the group or a responsibility to the group, which is not for her. It's not for her anymore. It's not instrumental to her. It's not based on herself. And I think that's, you know, considered certainly developmentally or, or I mean, yeah. both philosophically, but I think also psychologically, that's a, that's a different level of responsibility to the group. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think that's her path, changing her perspective from just self to broader themes and especially these three other people. She has three soulmates, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's found them, right? These guys, the, the group become their each other's soulmates in their own way and she's committed to them. She wants to be faithful to them and their commitments to each other. And she shows that in her own unique ways. I think you're right. She doesn't want them to know. And that Maya Rudolph gives a really nice nod when she says that. Like oh, I the all-knowing that. judge. I saw a little nod. I, I don't I don't know if it was intentional, but she was about to say that she's interrupted by Eleanor as Eleanor as the judge is about to judge Eleanor. You let everyone know that Eleanor past but has to go anyways and eleanor cuts her off and there's sort of this nod of like oh i see what you did nice move <laughs> you're still going to the bad place but nice move <laughs> i was interested that there were two things that were kind of about the mind there was the one about did you study a lot of torah and then there was the one about well maybe there were three things there was something three. you said about wisdom and then about what you you said critical thinking so you know obviously chidi does not fare well in this particular episode <laughs> Well, on the critical thinking, yeah, <laughs> but not just in this episode. <laughs> yes, it didn't. I mean, he he did clearly differentiate. There's a brown hat and there's a gray hat. He identified that they were different. <laughs> I think he failed on the wisdom piece. Maybe that he could tell there were different hats, <laughs> but. He just didn't have the wisdom to say, it doesn't matter which one I pick. Like, let's pick yeah. a hat and move on. Yeah. That's right. That's what the judge says. It's their hats. <laughs> right. Their hats. And it took yeah. you 82 minutes to pick one. <laughs> Although that's, I mean, that's where you asked me at the beginning, like, you know, who you're most like. Like, when, I, when I'm in a new restaurant and there's a new menu, it takes me forever to pick what to eat. Because uh, when I'm in a familiar restaurant, I know what I eat. Like mm -hmm. you know, many friends and family members make fun of me for this. But <laughs> in this restaurant, I eat this piece. There might be other things on the menu I, I like, but I remove the decision so that I, one, so that I can decide what to eat. And two, so that if I stray from my you know decision that I know is good, mm -hmm. I don't get upset that the alternate choice is worse than what I would have chosen if I just did the default. But in a new restaurant, I could stare at the brown hat and the gray hat or the, I don't know, the veggie burger and the omelet. And like, <laughs> it could take me 82 minutes to decide what to eat for dinner, much to... Without, without even discovering whether the almond milk has environmental consequences. Right, just about, it, that's not about, right, the impact beyond the choice. It's like, I'm at this restaurant and I want to maximize my enjoyment. It's the utilitarian dilemma. Which meal will make me most happy? And if I pick wrong, if I don't like my meal, I regret that I didn't pick the other meal. So it's Eleanor inner focused, but Sheedy 
inability to choose dilemma. So anyway. it's, yeah, it's <laughs> it's a pretty it's a pretty harsh characterization of Chidi in terms of reducing to this and then to this, you know, the false projection, the fake, the Chidi hologram or whatever who Eleanor is talking to who says forget ethics. And so I, I yeah. again I'm sorry. She discerns one thing from another and figures out this Chidi is not my Chidi. Yes. After saying that she's thought about contractualist Kantian what would Superman and Rihanna do? <laughs> yeah. See, that's one of those moments. Like, my kids need to tell me more about Rihanna, and I need to tell them more about Superman. <laughs> <laughs> it's the perfect mix of different characters from different yeah. decades. Well, but I, what I also like, you know, you, as you say, this test in the Talmud is not something that you give your personal accounting for right there. It's the, it's your portfolio. Right. It's your, it's your portfolio. So I don't, you know, Chidi is having a, a moment. It's, it's why these tests are, are, it's why tests, I guess, generally calling something this moment is a test is really hard to do. And I guess why the Talmud doesn't say like, you're going to be tested, you know. Right. At a well, the Talmud time, has you know. the point system. Meaning you collect this not in numerical points, but you collect this over a lifetime and just know when you get there, you need a yes answers. I'm still thinking about your question. Do you need four yes answers? Do you need six yes answers? Well, also like how much of it, like, you know, did you set aside time for study of Torah? Did you do your business faithfully? I mean, that's, you know, even even if you did, like, generally, you might have, that doesn't mean every single moment you did, was your trend in the right mm. direction? I was definitely one of those high school teachers who, if the last paper was good, I wanted to give that a, a higher weight than than the uh, average of all the papers. I was definitely there, right? It's not your arithmetic average that determines how much you learned. It's where you get to by the end of the learning. But then the weight, the weighting on these six items too is is kind of interesting because, as I say, I hadn't noticed how many of them were were kind of in the the learning reflective. Then this other one, you said, you know, did you what is it? Did you expect or anticipate? I anticipate salvation. Yeah, that horizon doesn't seem to be in the mix in the test. I guess it really it's the next episode they're going to talk much more about does the system work do we understand it are we yeah does it give us hope in this one it's it's pretty much mo you know focused on on this group actually it's in a way it's michael who's facing the question of like the do you does he expect salvation in a general sense he's the one who's trying starting to try to dope out the whole thing right that you know is there and he's also responsible for the salvation of others potentially mm. yeah yeah what I like about the question, it, it loses it in translation, but it's like the verb is, it says tsipita, which is connected to the like the noun mitzpah. Like that's when you're in Israel, the overlooks, when you look out at a view is like a mitzpah. So you're sort of standing and looking out. To me, it echoes like this notion of, it's a more literal notion about salvation is that like the Messiah is going to ride in and announce that it's coming. And I was thinking about like standing on that. Are you looking out and seeing if the Messiah is out there coming? And that's a literal read, but the metaphorical piece about that is, can you look out into the future and think that things are going to get better? And, you know, do you engage in helping make that come to be? I don't know if that's all embedded in what Rava meant by the question, because, you know, anticipating could, it could be just belief. I believe that one day there'll be salvation for people who earned it. There's a piece of this that's about, because of the Hebrew word that's used, that to me, focus on anticipating, and it's like an active thing, mm. not just a, I don't know, a, a, a passive thing.
I'm not sure how that plays out, but I feel like a piece of that is about believing that the future could be better, believing that we can overcome obstacles, believing that we could build a society that's just and ethical, believing that this is possible as opposed to throwing up your hands and saying, nope, we're done for. We're done for. It's over. The world is dark and we're all going to rot. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because I think where you know they're so disoriented from the first moment of this episode by the burrito and then the judge herself. So I bet if you ask them in the moment, they would like, "How does how how are you feeling about the way the system works, and is it going to work out for the best?" They're like, "We can't even figure out what's what's happening." It has a really good you know flat screen high res TV that it's got that going for it, yeah. and and you can walk in one door and like suddenly appear on the other side of the hallway. You know? Yeah. Repeatedly, that's that's pretty cool. But I I also wonder, and I guess maybe this goes back to what I was saying about Eleanor before and her sense of the the group. She may not be thinking about humanity as a whole, but at least in terms of the the four of them, that matters. But I feel like maybe Chidi always has been, but certainly Tahani and Jason don't seem to have any particularly wide horizon right now at all. And even if they got the five questions right, I wonder about the last one. And I think about people I know who I think would check off five boxes, but wouldn't check off the six. They either don't know or they sort of act well, even in the face of a kind of either despair or just complete you know, unwillingness to to say, no, I can't, I just can't commit to the idea that there absolutely is going to be salvation, that they either that there's anything or that the world out, out there after this, or that the world is going to get better. And I love that notion. And then wonder, like, if that's the one you don't get, I wonder how Rava would think about it. I love the thinking that way. I guess part of me thinks of this as a motivational text, as opposed to a descriptive text, meaning, you know, and, and it might be that I even think for Rava, from a, you know, a different century might have thought that too. Not that this is really what happens. Mm-hmm. You don't really get there and there's this checklist of these six questions, but you know, what are the questions I want to ask people now to help them live the good life? Mm-hmm. You know, I think this is more about the good life than the good place. And yes. maybe the good place is the reward and that, you know, I got a question in my interview for rabbinical school, which was a lead into a question about the weekly Torah portion. And the question was like, you know, we're, we're, where do you go to synagogue every Shabbat? And as a college student heading to rabbinical school, like I was in synagogue Friday night more than Saturday morning, just because of my sleep pattern, not about <laughs> any religious commitments, maybe, you know, the early twenties, but that was a lead. And, 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 but they were then the follow-up when I said, well, I'm mostly sleeping or I dive on my own because you know, I don't get up that early in Shabbat. And someone said, well, what do you do about studying the weekly Torah portion? And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> we don't study the weekly Torah portion every week? And I was like, no. They said, well, why not? And I said, well, no one ever told me I should do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess I'm going to start now. <laughs> you know, and it, it, that didn't bar me from entering rabbinical school. But it's this moment of like, if, if that was the moment where someone taught me a particular way that I was expected as an emerging, the person emerging, you know, into the rabbinate to make fixed times for Torah. That, you know, every week there's a slice of the Torah that we read and I should make a fixed time for it. But if I hadn't gotten that question, I never would have, I wouldn't have added that to my routine. And, you know, I think that's what Rav is trying to do here. I'm asking you these questions so you see them and you can adjust accordingly. Mm. Um, and then, because if no one had asked you these questions, you might not thought that these are the things you should be thinking about. Mm-hmm. Rava thinks these are the things and he wants to 
asked these questions. That's why I mentioned Bruce Powell was one of the people who showed me this text for the first time. This was a standard text that he used to teach at graduation to say like, all right, you're moving from high school to college or all kinds of things in front of you. And, you know, you have majors to pursue and all kinds of interests. But remember, these are the six questions you're going to be asked. It was a great thing I thought to challenge 18 year olds with at graduation, not about like all the great graduation speeches that people charge young people with. And this was one of Bruce's to say, as you're leaving, this is the last text I want you to hear before you graduate from our school, that these six questions you know, matter. Put aside your SAT scores, put aside what college you're going to, put aside all these, you know, the, the, your gap year program. Remember these questions. And that's what's going to set you on the right path for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, that to me echoes what Rob was talking about. Yeah, no, and I like that. And, and I, I probably should say I try to say every so often that I really think of the good place generally as about the good life. I love how you said that I'm less I'm less interested in knowing. I don't think I'm ever going to know what the at least till, till I get there what the story is in the beyond. But what you're saying now, this is why I keep, you know, why I disagree with you about Tahani, because I feel like yeah. Tahani is the one who represents that that conventional scheme of values, fame, and to some degree wealth, although I don't think she thinks about wealth like for for the sake of wealth so much as the acclaim that comes from being embedded in the wealthy culture. But her parents here, they confront her with this, like, your sister dedicated her last album to you, not you specifically. But But all her fans. (laughs) All her fans of whom you are one. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, and when Tahani says, I'm sorry that our relationship was not what you had hoped it would be, that there's a certain perspective getting that that comes from that. And if, if indeed what you're describing is the mm. the picture of a life well lived that she's you know trying to get rid of the piece that's keeping her from some of these questions at least it may not be a positive embodiment of exactly every one of these yeah yeah things. i don't know i see that well it's a transition moment where she's letting go of the judgment of her parents that's why she opened that door she was hoping she'd get something different and she didn't and like she absolved them or, or there's a way that she separated it was a growth moment yeah i like your read on that scene well done. I was thinking about this teaching of the Baal Shem Tov about judgment that I think, I don't know if he wrote it, the Baal Shem Tov, the f- really founder of, of Hasidic Judaism. He might have either written about this in the context of the, the High Holy Days, or maybe I just taught it and encountered it in connection, and this theme of the divine judge. And it was a lovely teaching to say, you know, we have this tendency to deflect judgment, and so we judge others. And so when we see those situations, you know, part one is we should try to notice the judgments we make about others and point them at ourselves, see if that's really what we're judging. And the second thing that he says in this teaching is that the divine does not judge us until we judge ourselves and get out of this thing where you're wondering about the divine judgment because actually uh, all the divine does is to ratify the the judgment you make you're you're the one in that position if you'll step up and actually judge yourself you'll find that's the most wow. important judgment now it doesn't work so much for <laughs> for jason i guess but it seems to work it's it seems yeah. to work well for the others in, in this situation and because it's it's neat how they kind of blow i mean the way they sort of blow off the judge she holds their fate literally in their hands and they are i guess at the very end they come to a moment in this episode before janet and michael appear where they're kind of like okay we've played our hands yeah. but they do continue to push back several times against the idea that this woman is really 
who's right. going to implement this. Like they they understand that there are standards and they should be they should be judged, but their claim is like, no, we know how to judge ourselves. Like we're we've right. gotten better, and you have to you have to accept that. Right. Well, that's the power that they claim. I think ultimately it's the power of the show, right? This show, like all kidding and slapstick aside, it's for human beings who come to understand how the world and it, the afterlife should be, to be fair. And even though Sean says fair is the silliest word, right? The worst word human ever <laughs> invented, but they want it to work out the way it's supposed to work out. And as they learn what's behind the curtain and deal with that and their own experience, they're like, no, we could figure this out better. <laughs> and, and that's their agency that they act on. And spoiler alert, like they're successful in reorienting the universe because of their commitment to it, you know, and much to the first surprise or over the opposition of these divine beings and they make it work. I think there's a power to that. Yeah. So I ask you this also, Elliot, which is that if the point that they're making is that we have improved and, and you, sh you, the judge, should take that into account, they, they still under have to understand, like, what does that mean? Improved against what? Approve against what standard? And you're laying out from the Talmud, from Rava, what kind of standards are. And I mean, do you see do you see that some of these things do kind of describe the way in which their improvements have taken place? The show characters. Yeah. That's interesting. Like we could say, like oh. Eleanor, it's obvious. I mean, Eleanor can say, I'm not a selfish jerk the way it was before. That's, yeah, that's pretty easy. Yeah. Well, I think um, what's interesting is the show's answer is I think you're measured against yourself. It goes back to the first text you looked at on this podcast. Shuvat, right? Improving yourself is about being in the same situation and doing better. And it's about you know, that cycle. And in some ways, these guys get the advantage of it's almost like reincarnation, even though they reincarnate as themselves. Yeah. But it's like the same way every time Janet is rebooted, she develops. And that happens to the people, too. Every time they start over, every time there's a new universe, every time the rules change, they get better moving to some end. And it's not necessarily about focused on a, a value set like Rob points to. I think the show is arguing like, just do better. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, all we can do is do better and, and not in a limiting way. All we can do is do better. And so that's what you should do. Well, I think but there are ways, I mean, what, what I'm, what I'm thinking about is whether Rava's list is, you know, here are the six ways in which you can do better. The six tools you have at your disposal to yeah. do better, which might be a nice way to integrate them. And that's why, like, as I say, in the moment, Chidi's, you know, this episode, he sucks as a moral philosopher, but he hasn't overall. And it also like here, they're separated from each other for the most part. They're not entirely. They have a few moments where they get to make their arguments together and a few moments yeah. where they have to deal with things on their own, but their togetherness, which is a key feature of, of especially the season has, uh, you know, is sort of standing there for them. And in that sense, not all six of these things are going to show up for you in every moment. Right. But they are overall. I'm, I'm, yeah. like, I'm being the bad teacher who like had an answer in mind when I, when I asked uh, the question, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, uh, maybe, listen, I didn't, maybe I didn't. You're, allowed, you're allowed to voice your opinion on your own yeah. podcast. <laughs> After <laughs> all. Our, our podcast. No, I guess I, I do want to sort of set back with this as like a wondering though, because my, psychodrama of the podcast is that I want I want Chidi overall to be right. I want it to matter that you do the things that are conceptual and that you study those things. 
and studying them either on your own or I suppose from the show, studying them in a group actually has practical payoff value. These concepts and these disciplines of of ethical philosophy are indispensable. You can't get anywhere without them. Well, that's question five. Did you contemplate philosophical truths? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, And Jason, I guess, is the the extreme test case for that. But even he, like, he, con- he contemplates them. Yeah. <laughs> He's starting to contemplate them. Well, he, you know, in his simple way, I don't know, it's, it's a couple seasons away, but he becomes an important voice of reason. <laughs> before, before this all comes to an end, there are simple truths that he's able to voice that the philosopher can't do, that, like, <laughs> Eleanor, the leader, doesn't bring them to. He emerges in, in, in a really endearing way. You know, he gets his silly moments at the end too, but I think that's there. I don't know. I think these questions, you know, each part of what's hard with the show is that even though there's a richness to each of the characters, they each are in their own lane and there's, there's a richness, but there's also a flatness. So none of them are challenged by all six questions mm-hmm. and each of them have some of the questions that, you know, you know, were you ethical in business? That's an Eleanor question you know, from the flashbacks, you know, I think they all start to anticipate salvation. I think that's the question they take on because they want salvation to be real and not just this, you know, the way in which the bureaucracy of the afterlife (laughs) grinds it all to a halt (laughs) because not only is the bad place broken, but the actual good place when we actually get to see it, that's broken too. Like the, everything's broken in this world and they want salvation to be real. So they anticipate salvation more so than the people who are running it. That's true. And they'll eventually I think in the beginning of the next season, actually through the next season, they'll start to see how that if your salvation system is broken, the world too might be yeah. broken. Yeah. In uh, yeah, ways yeah. That, that affects how you view things when you're in the world. Mm. Yeah, maybe that the Rava's here more than, than I thought before, uh, however long ago we started this conversation. <laughs> Is there anyone, Elliot, who you would want to give a shout out to? Well, I guess you started to, but someone who is a, a kind of early influence on you in terms of thinking about ethics or ethical philosophy. Yes. My the shout out I would give is to, he's no longer with us, unfortunately, Don Levine, who is a professor in the sociology department at the University of Chicago. I stumbled into his classroom because he taught a course, Conflict Theory and Aikido. It was a course that looked at conflict theory as a you know, academic topic, but also looked at it, how it played out, you know, on the mats of a martial art. So we had three hours in class and three hours on the mats every week. And it was this awesome fusion of academia and like informal education. And I took it because of that. And then that was the course that helped me fall in love really with the world of ideas in the way in which, you know, Chidi gets excited about each of the thinkers and how they interrelate with each other. Like, Studying social thought with with Don Levine helped me really think about um, or introduced me to the, you know, the world of ideas and how the different thinkers played off each other or built on each other or or reacted against one another and created this whole conversation in which we contemplate the big questions. What's what society supposed to be about? What are the ways to live a good life? You know, all those big questions. And from there, as you know, my journey led deeper into Jewish answers to that question, you know, rabbinical school. But I think the the foundation for the the schema in my head about how to think about these questions came from his classroom. He recently passed away and it was a sad moment for me, but reminded me of just how formative it was being a student of his. Mm, thank you. 
Well, Elliot Goldberg, thank you for co-hosting today. My pleasure. I can now, I have this list of like, you know, my bucket list, like be <laughs> on a podcast. I can check <laughs> off the box. I'm really excited about that. And it was fun. You know, it, what, what people don't know is like when we get together and we have lunch or coffee or something, this is what we talk about anyway. So this felt like <laughs> a good piece. And I hope that this one that will not just be um, for us, but might be edited a little bit for brevity and <laughs> coherence, but also will then be shown to the public. Like I hope getting together for lunch is as entertaining for the people who listen to the podcast as it is for the few of us who do it. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. All right. And that's another episode of Tove. Thank you for letting us keep you company while you fold laundry or drive safely. We post show notes with links to the Jewish texts we talk about, deeper dives, and explanations of Jewish terms at tovegoodplace.com. We'd love if you'd spread the word about the podcast. Give us a shout out on your own social media. Subscribe and rate us if you're using a podcast app. Connect with us at Tove Good Place on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Elliot Goldberg is on Twitter at Elliot underscore Goldberg with two L's. And I'm John Spira-Savet at RabbiJS3 on Twitter and Instagram. And I write more serious things at RabbiJohn.net, J-O-N. Thanks again for listening. And at the risk of losing a few points of my own afterlife credit, I close by rewriting the words of Mark Evan Jackson, who plays Sean, from the end of every official Good Place podcast. Now go learn more about something good. Bum 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 bum